Hello, and welcome back to the Video Essay Podcast. I'm your host, Will DeGravio. On today's show, I sit down with Amanda Kim, who is the director of the new documentary, Namjoon Pike, Moon is the Oldest TV. This superb new documentary on the pioneering video artist recently just played at CPH Docs, and this Friday, March 24th, opens for a run at Film Forum here in New York City. If you are not uh, able to catch a screening at Film Forum, be sure to be on the lookout for this truly fantastic film. It was such a treat to be able to talk to Amanda about her work and what it was like to bring such a a prolific and groundbreaking life to the screen. As always, you can learn more about the Video Essay podcast at thevideoessay.com and subscribe to our free newsletter at thevideoessay.substack.com. And this month is really shaping up to be Video Art Month here. Um, Over at our companion website, Recycled Screenings, which is a platform for found footage and other filmmakers to screen their work, uh, are three works by Montreal video artist Dana McLeod. Um, it also features a conversation between Dana and myself and supplementary texts written one by Dana and one by me. Um, and please do consider making a donation as it goes directly to the artist. Thank you so much as always for listening. And now without further ado, here's my conversation with Amanda Kim. to be now be joined by uh, Amanda Kim, who is the director of Namjoon Pike, uh, Moon is the Oldest TV, which is a, a new documentary that I, I believe um, you're just coming from CPH Docs, um, where the film screened and where I'm actually covering remotely now and watched it through that. But I live in New York City and the film is opening at Film Forum on uh, Friday. We're recording this on Wednesday, so Friday, March 24th. And I saw that Sold out screenings are already happening. And uh, so if, you, if you're in the New York area or really anywhere in the world, you should be keeping an eye out for this film. But um, Amanda, the director, thank you so much for joining us today. It's so great to have you. Thank you so much, Will, for having me. And it's super exciting um, that I'm speaking to you kind of at the eve of the premiere at Film Forum. And I'm so excited to share it with everyone in New York, hopefully, who can make it out. So. Yes. And, and you will be there in person, right? So will you be doing Q&As for some of the screenings? How will that work? Yeah. So I will be doing um, a bunch of different Q&As for the opening weekend. Uh, I will be there uh, Friday at 8 p.m. the 24th, um, 8 p.m. Saturday the 25th, 3.15 p.m. Uh, Sunday the 26th, and then 8 p.m. the 27th. Uh, that will also be moderated by the brilliant uh, writer Mary 
HK Choi. Uh, and then I will also be doing um, more Q&As the following Thursday and Friday. The Friday one will be with my editor, Taryn Gould. Uh, and then Thursday will be with my producer, Jennifer Stockman. Amazing. I'm going to have to try and make one of these because it'll be great to see it up on the big screen. And, and everything we talk about, there'll be links in the description below and and whatnot. Um, but so we're here to, again, to talk about this documentary. And like I was saying to you before we started recording, this show kind of began in trying to understand the phenomenon of the video essay, both in uh, academia and also kind of on YouTube and by critics like Matt Zoller sites and things like that. But as the show, we're going on our fourth year here, I kind of realized like, oh, we need to start looking back and kind of understanding the various remix and found footage and artistic visual art traditions that kind of fed kind of this one, you know, subgenre of cinema moving image. And so Namjoon Pike, is, his work is obviously, I think, part of that. And so I'd be curious to a hear about your own background and also what how how you got to working on this on this project. Yeah, for sure. So um, my own background was in media. Uh, I didn't go to film school or anything. I studied comparative literature uh, in French, Japanese, and English. And I, you know, I worked in various cultural fields. I worked in music at one point. I worked in fashion. Uh, I worked in uh, graphic design. I've kind of had my hand in a bunch of different creative fields. And I think um, what essentially led me to film or what I love about film is that uh, it brings all of those things together. You have to be thinking about the look. You have to be thinking about the music. You have to be thinking about uh, the lighting when you're doing the camera work. Um, you are um, interacting with so many different people and it's a very collaborative effort. So I think that really drew me in, uh, to filmmaking and, uh, where I learned kind of got my feet wet, uh, regard, um, in the production area is through Vice Media. Um, I landed a job there as a creative and that, title was very broad and I didn't even know what that meant <laughs> when I joined. Uh, yeah. and it meant that I was coming up with concepts for branded content, specifically pitching video ideas to brands, how they could be integrated seamlessly into this content and get them to um, finance a lot of interesting documentary content for Vice. Vice was very ahead of the curve in this realm. Nowadays, you see branded content everywhere, but this this was when it was still quite new. And then, you know, everyone followed suit. So that it was an exciting period. Um, even though it was working specifically for brands, I really enjoyed um, being able to experiment with different kinds of video creation through this. And then uh, I fell in love with the production aspect of it. Uh, and so then they moved me over to Viceland, the TV channel that they were developing at the time uh, with Annie. And Viceland was a bit different, uh, even though uh, Vice was already known at the time for doing very like, hard cutting um, journalism with HBO. Uh, this was specifically um, more uh, culture based. Uh, not news. So I did a lot of stuff around music, subculture, fashion, art. Uh, I worked with Garage Magazine. I worked with Creators Project, which was uh, the intersection between art and technology. I did a lot of stuff with ID Magazine. And so there was a natural connection for me and art. And um, 
I went to a lot of museums and I knew of Namjoon's name growing up and that uh, I had seen his work before, but I came across um, one of his pieces, TV Buddha, um, you know, five, six, the dates are murky, but let's say like six years ago or so, because I started really diving into this project five years ago. So um, I started researching him and was wondering why there wasn't a documentary about him already. And at that point, I was ready to leave Vice and I was interested in kind of developing my own voice and style. So uh, I started finding really interesting clips of him ripping everything I could find of him online. And that's, then it started snowballing from there. So, Sorry, it's a very long story of my life at Vice and yeah. No, but it, it's it's very cool to hear, right? This kind of intersection of technology and culture, right? It's like it's that's what <laughs> is so prevalent in in his work. And I, I was actually going to ask you about that because so after watching your documentary, I immediately went online and was like, okay, I need to find like find as much of this as I can see. Um, and obviously, I think with folks who work in the museum space and, and visual art, it's it's hard to to see see some stuff. I mean, some of the, you know, the TV works are on internet archive, which is great. And, and I watched them there. Um, but what was that process like for you in sort of immersing yourself in, in the material? Like, how did you go about doing that? Did you travel around? Did like, I, I'd be curious to know that. And especially kind of, I assume you did some of this during the height of the pandemic, perhaps. So yeah, what, what was, what was that gathering of materials and in, in immersion like? Yeah, that was a very um, key component to creating this film because Namjoon passed in 2006. So um, I really had only the archives to try and watch him and understand him. And then also his video artworks are at the heart of all of this too. So um, in terms of his video work, I was, you know, Electronic Arts Intermix had a lot of that, and uh, they're an incredible resource, and um, his works are preserved very well, and I was super lucky to be working with them. But then I really wanted to gather archives of him in front of the camera, um, and that was a whole other story, because that was not all compiled in one place. And yes, it was a global effort. So early on, um, as I said, I'm really obsessive about research and um, I get into these really intense research modes um, and and I, I you find one footnote and then I reach out to that person and then it becomes a web. <laughs> um, and so that was, um, I did a lot of that early on myself, but then I was really fortunate to um, get Wyatt Stone, who's an archival producer of many amazing documentaries. I think he did the Malcolm X documentary. He did the Velvet Underground documentary. Um, he's worked on so many different documentaries that I respect. And he um, was excited by the project, even though we didn't really have much of a budget. He was very early on to just jump in with me. And he helped me so much because um, he, he just knows where to look. So he uh, reached out to all of these places um, and connected me to lots of different sources and taught me also tricks that I might not have known. And uh, I also had to get on the phone with a lot of people, you know, in Germany, for example, uh, it, they had all these strict rules about sending out archives, but the minute you call them and he they hear your voice, 
it's you build a different they know you're a person and you build a relationship with them and they're more willing and trusting to send you something online that they normally would tell you you have to come in person to see and i think covid was honestly it was a barrier it was difficult in so many ways but it also kind of made people more relaxed about sharing things online because that was really the only way so um a lot of archives were very strict about not sending things online but because of covid they were starting to make a few exceptions so in a way i did travel a bit but i also was able to get a lot remotely um, I found things. I had amazing Korean co-producers in Korea who helped me find a lot of the footage in Korea. Um, I had a researcher in Japan. I couldn't even enter Japan. Japan had just completely closed its borders, uh, and there was no way around that. Uh, they recently opened up, and now everyone's going to Japan on vacation. So, um, and I traveled to Germany uh, to do some interviews. And I think interviews were key too. His community, without his community, I couldn't have done this. So much of Namjoon in front of the camera was me finding people who were present at specific events I was researching, and they they would say, "Oh, so and so was at that event. You got to contact so and so." Or that guy always had the camera at you know around these events. You should talk to them. And they would be people that no one would even have thought to reach out to. Um, and I think that was really important is building relationships with the people in his community. And, um, and also that was very special to me because um, all of these people were interesting in their own right and had their own stories. And I wanted to hear them, even if I wasn't able to include everything in the film. That's so great to hear and great advice for people <laughs> out there. And I think that that communal aspect I felt very much was foregrounded in your film. Like that, it, it's very clear kind of the community in which he was working in which he came out of and how that kind of shaped the work itself. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, he, he, um, he says that, you know, in the Orwell piece, all um, they were uh, those people were forced to do it because they were my old friends. <laughs> right. <laughs> he constantly includes his avant-garde family and community in his works, and even behind the camera, the people you know who are working on the, who are the cameramen who are directing it. All of these people were people in his community, and I and I think he brought a lot of people together, and he was kind of the joint in the network. I kind of think of him as the internet. <laughs> he creates a web of associations in the way that the internet works. Um, and I, I did feel sad though, because he knew so many people, so many interesting people. And I couldn't include everyone because the film would have been 20 hours long, but I wish I could have because everyone was so cool. Yeah. No, that I love, I love that image of him as the, as the internet. That's great. And uh, one thing that I also really appreciated about the documentary, because you mentioned wanting to show him in front of the camera, and I felt that it was so great to see his labor, right? His, you know, and you talk in the documentary about how, you know, that took a toll on his health, right? The, his, you know, being so prolific and working and, and living um, in, you know, making very little money, um, and things like that. And so seeing that labor, I think is so right. That's one of the great gifts that this documentary can provide, right. That context. And so could you just speak to that, 
um, a little more and, and why that was, why that was important for you to, to, to show his, his body and his work. Yeah. I think that was essentially the key difference between to me, at least going to a museum and seeing his work versus seeing the film. Um, his work speaks volumes obviously and is so um mesmerizing and prescient and you go to a museum and at least for me I love his work so um I'm always in awe in the presence of his work at the same time you don't get to see the person behind it and you don't understand um um the what goes into the creation of a piece and also what his, maybe his ideas were, you know, you, I think what's really cool in a museum is you can create your own um, meaning and connection toward the work. But then when you understand that Namjoon had the, the context of Namjoon's ideas and how broad he was, he's a thinker. That's how I think of him actually, that he is synthesizing information from his times and seeing ahead. And whatever medium it is, through video, performance, music, and um, and I think through the f- only through the film can you get that kind of intimacy and that kind of knowledge of him. Um, and then also he's so, I think he's so charismatic and funny, and that was really important to me to capture that essence of him as a person and um, a dialogue between his thoughts and the audience versus just um, an art historical um, portrait of his work. Uh, I wanted to be a human story. So that was very important to me. And that's why I searched long and hard for the archives of him in front of the camera and also incorporated his writings uh, that were read by Stephen Yun um, as a way for us to get inside his head at, at, and he was also very private. That's another thing. So um, everyone around him had little bits of information, but he never shared the full story to anyone. And I think through the film, I'm trying to put, put the puzzle pieces together, but you know, it's a long journey in doing that. Yeah. How do you, as a, as a, filmmaker and and researcher like what is your mindset and approach to trying to develop that into like that intimacy like when you're interviewing like like an intimacy that you have to form through someone who you know only through their work and who is deceased and you're trying to get to know through other people like I'm interested just kind of in a either like concrete experiences of how you thought about that, or maybe even just like a more philosophical answer, because I can imagine that there are a lot of ethical questions or ways that you're trying to check yourself to make sure that you're like, you're, you're painting an accurate portrait. Like what, what, what is that process like? And just in terms of, yeah, thinking that through. Yeah, there's definitely um, a, and I'm sure all documentary filmmakers feel this way. There's a responsibility towards your subject or um, community because, yeah, they you you want to make sure you do them justice. So um, I think for me, really important part of this process was just spending so much time, even before the creation, like putting going into the edit. I spend so much time just with him and his writings and his videos. 
um, so that I could really under try to understand who he was um, and not rush into just the making or scripting or forming um, a very structured uh, narrative of him and putting him in a box. So that was really important to me. Um, I also let the archives kind of take me. So, um, you know, some people, even in archival film, might have a little bit more of a script ahead of time. I knew what I wanted his work and his ideas to lead us to, you know, about the ways in which he was seeing patterns of history based on his own experiences with the Cold War and leaving his home and how he was prescient in many ways and why and but and he was hopeful and also cynical at the same time I knew those are themes I wanted to hit but it's because that was important to me and why I was drawn to Namjoon I think he's so important for us today but other than that I I wasn't going in saying this is what it has to be and this is how I'm going to structure everything because I think that's when sometimes you can get into a get a little bit stuck and maybe not do the archives justice or even him justice because now that I'm really rich I have a rigid idea and then he has to fit into my idea versus I'm watching him or I find a new piece of writing and I'm like oh this has to be in it because I just discovered this and this feels actually like the key and I need to incorporate it then we have to change all the things around it and so um, with the editor, it was very fluid in that way. And I think that was a very important part of the process to try and check myself. Right. And it and it kind of captures the spirit of his work itself, right? That kind of, it, it, it didn't seem to me that he was, it was, he was always kind of working in those flows, right? And just kind of letting the material speak to him, right? Is that kind of worked? Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. I think um, my editor and I always use the word river, we want the film to feel like a river flowing, but not in a way where you get lost or it's too avant-garde because we want it to be accessible to an audience that doesn't know that much about art history. We could have made something definitely more niche and insular. And I do have a little bit more, um, I have a lot of artist friends and I, I would have loved, I love experimental film. So I could have gone in that direction, but it's really important to me that in the way Nam June was trying to be accessible, putting his work on public television and not just keeping it in inside a gallery. I wanted to do something like that with the film and make his name, um, and his story heard, um, to a wider audience, especially young audience that, uh, where, who are all engaged with these new technologies and making TikTok videos and YouTube videos. So, and yeah, this, this video got me your, your, your documentary rather just, yeah, it's a, it, it's a great ode to the importance of public broadcasting too, right? <laughs> where he's recording at WGBH in, in, in Boston and, and the like, and what you just said kind of led me to my next question, which was, you may have already answered, but I'd be curious to hear more. One of the things I, I sometimes find myself disappointed in docs about kind of avant-garde artists, because I think sometimes they take the the too many talking heads kind of approach. Um, and I wish like they, you know, whereas we, you know, we need some talking heads because we need context and we want to, as you say, to draw people in who might not know about the subject. And I, I really appreciated the way that I felt that your that this film balances the two and and really tries to capture something about kind of the, the the aesthetic of the subject. And so could you talk about 
Um, could you just talk about finding that that balance? And I mean, maybe you disagree with me that it, but I I think that's what I took away from it. And I'd be curious also to hear how do you how do you in the editing room decide which clips of works to show? And I apologize if that's like a two part question, but I'm yeah, <laughs> I see you nodding. Yeah, Go ahead. No, for sure. I um, thank you. Firstly, I think that's um, that's something that I really wanted to achieve. Obviously, it's very difficult when someone is not around anymore and you're limited with um, some of the materials and a lot of discovery happens while talking to people. So you end up with the talking heads. Um, and I also love verite films and there's some documentaries with talking heads that I also adore. And it's always a mix, just how it's executed. Um, and um I think for me, because community was so important to Namjoon, um, that it made sense to me that there would be um, these, his friends who are interviewed and incorporated into the film, but how to not make it feel so staid and dry. And um, and I think incorporating Namjoon's writings and balancing that with the talking heads was really important to me. So you're both getting... Uh, more um, intimate, uh, you know, window into Namjoon's brain while also having these outside voices support it or disagree or, you know, uh, take you on two slightly separate journeys um, to get you closer to this character. Uh, And I think another part that was exciting for me, and this only happened because of COVID, is that I ended up using Zooms that I had recorded and I think that really played in just also stylistically to freshen up, uh, mix up the talking head uh, experience is just using whatever was available to tell the best story because Nam June approached work like that too. You know, it's, it, uh, he would always say, um, you know, uh, the key to my life is um, uh, like, if too perfect, God will be angry, you know, 75% good. Seven. And so I try to use that ethos whenever I was frustrated or there were some obstacles and then some things would turn out more interesting sometimes. Um, and that was kind of also how I approached just the talking head experience in general. Um, when I couldn't interview people during COVID and um, I thought it'd be fun to incorporate a bit of different styles. Yeah. Cause you kind of frame them in like kind of a black, like a black background at times and kind of gives a little television aesthetic to it as well. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I just kind of tried all these weird different things in a way um, trying to take a more um, accessible, like commercial approach while experimenting within that framework. So playing with that. And then, um, and then the other part of your question was, yeah. Um, well, thank thank you for that. And yeah, I think that this question of the talking head thing, because it, it is just a very interesting one to me. Because yeah, in, in your point of, you know, we're getting a sense of community and hearing from voices. Whereas I feel like you know, you hear a documentary about like, you know, Trump, and it's some random person being like a long interview that the sum is like, yeah, wasn't it crazy that he was elected? And it's like, no, we, we know that. Um, so, so this, I felt like, you know, it was, it was, it was great to, yeah, to see those voices in, in, in different forms. Um, but the other question I had was, how do you decide which clips you're going to kind of use? Like talk about the, that archival aspect to it. Cause I think it's also particularly relevant to, to, to this podcast and the, and the folks who are 
reappropriating images and sounds all the time uh, in particular. So I'd be curious to know, take us inside the editing room. <laughs> I mean, that is a really interesting question and something I thought about a lot with the editor because he's a video artist and I'm kind of working in the medium that he works in. And how do I make sure that people aren't confused by what is his work and what is my work and, um, and representing honestly his work while excerpting it. Like that was very difficult actually. And, um, and you have to create kind of your own guardrails for how you want to approach that. And I was also thinking what other video artists have documentaries made about them? How did they approach that? You know? And I, there really weren't that many documentaries about other video artists, which was also sad. I think there's so many interesting video artists out there that deserve recognition and the spotlight. Um, but uh, I think one of the ways in which the editor and I decided to approach excerpting is um, by not doing the experimental approach of cutting up his pieces like crazy. I, that would have been actually really fun because I very, I like doing that. I love uh, collaging and mashing images, but um, I really tried to restrain myself um, and take clips as chunks versus one split, not making it trailer or music video vibes um, and use it as I please. I, I didn't just take it whenever I needed it. Um, I just took it when I was talking about that piece specifically, unless it was source material. If I found a videotape of his that wasn't a piece of work, but a source tape, I could use it um, as texture or as um, pieces that were uh, uh, more stylistic elements through the film. But if it was an actual piece, then I would um, excerpt it um, properly and not just smash it together and create my own video piece. Um, and another thing is I wouldn't add anything. So, you know, you see static um, a lot throughout the film, but I would never add static to his work. Um, there are things like that, you know, I was really thinking through it. It seems small, but it really meant a lot where I wasn't taking his video work and just creating my own piece. Uh, and then it always had to be complemented with um, something someone was talking about, like, why am I using that piece, right? Um, I want to um, show people something specific that they need to know right now. And so it wasn't, uh, if I can't show the whole 30 minute piece or an hour long piece, then there's a purpose in what I'm showing you at that moment. That's, yeah, that's, that's very helpful to think about that in that intent, because in a way it kind of, you know, categorization is always, you know, <laughs> whatever it is, but that's, yeah, the, the, that's what makes it a documentary. Yeah, I think honestly, from what Nam, what I've learned about Nam June, and I'm, I don't like speaking for someone who's not around, but just in general, even in his writings, he was very open to young. He wanted the younger generation. He would always be excited about the future um, generation. His students. He always. He actually had. You know, he was a teacher, uh, and he really wanted to grow the next generation of video artists. And he didn't care if people took his work and smashed it up. And he was very open to that. And he actually thought that was interesting. A work was never finished, and it could. He was also reappropriating other people's things, and he wanted others to do that. He was really not precious about that stuff, even with his. Um, big sculptural work. He was okay with, he said, if there's new technology, CRT um, uh, monitors are out, then just replace it with a flat screen, you know? Um, and even though art historians would not want that and museums don't want that either because they want to preserve 
the accuracy of the original piece. He was not so much like that. Um, and so it could, I think it'd be really fun to take his work and mash it up and do something cool with it. And that's not um, something I'm opposed to at all. It was just for this documentary, for the purpose of this, I was creating some guardrails. Absolutely. Well, we, we said, you know, a lot of, a lot of his stuff's on the internet archive. So if anyone's listening in and wants to create some cool stuff, tweet it, send it, like, <laughs> I would love to see what comes up. Um, and, and I want to be respectful of your time. So I'll just ask a, a couple more questions, but one thing that we haven't talked on, and I could talk about the re, you know, reappropriation all day, but very important is, is music um, and, and sound, right? You can't talk about his work without music. And so could you describe to us kind of the creating the soundscape of the film and, and how, how you thought about that? Because obviously for him, music is, while the images may stick in our mind, like music is like essential to understanding his work. So could you talk to that, talk to us about that? Yeah, no, I'm really happy that you are asking me about sound because that is, it changes the film completely. And I think that was very, very important to the edit. Um, yeah, he was his, his um, background, it all, his artistic background all started at, in music and he was a composer. Uh, and he, I think of the way in which he edits his images and synthesizes is, is music. It's completely musical. He's, creating compositions with his visuals. Um, and uh, what I worked with composer Will Epstein, who I thought was a very great, a perfect choice in my mind um, for the film because he had both an avant-garde background. He makes experimental music and he also makes pop music. And I loved that range. I wanted some to have music that was really lyrical and melodic and could, um, you know, push the narrative forward in the more traditional sense. But I also wanted to play with the more avant-garde experimental sounds that were influenced by John Cage. And Will has actually been a friend of mine since college. And he was one of the first people to tell me that I should um, read John Cage's biography. And he was very much inspired by John Cage as well. And in the film, actually, he creates his own prepared pianos. So some you hear some music that's Will's homage to Cage on June. Yeah, which is so beautiful. And I, I love that. That was actually totally Will. He he proposed that. And I once he sent me some of tr those tracks, I just, I was like, this is perfect. We're using it. And so it was such a great collaboration. Um, so easy and just, he got it. Um, and then with Taryn Gould, my editor, she actually has a background in music. She started working um, doing music videos and also um, touring with bands, filming them, and then creating music documentaries. So she's very musical when she's editing. She's sound editing at the same time while editing the visuals. She's very obsessive over sound. Um, I've never met an editor who's that obsessive with sound, and I think that changes everything for this. Um, and it was so – all of that together was really important in creating – um, the film that we ended up creating. And then another thing is that we had Sakamoto create a theme piece, which was so special because he's one of my favorite composers of all time. I'm sure he's a lot of people's favorite composer. Um, and I grew up loving his music, his soundtracks, but also his own albums. And I 
I grew up in Japan actually, and I used to see him at a restaurant I go to, and I would just stalk him um, from afar. And when I reached out to him, I couldn't believe he agreed to do it. And he was actually very close to Namjoon. He was very young um, when uh, he befriended Namjoon in the 80s. And so he made the, the piece he made, it's it kind of after the title card, it's his piece coming in. And um, he, you can hear Namjoon's collaging in it. It's very beautiful. It really moved me. So, yeah, the it's it's a collage piece in a way. I think it's perfect. I understand. I love talking to you on the video essay podcast because it is a video essay in the way that we are collaging all of these archives and sounds. Wow, that's so that's so amazing to hear. I'm like, I need to go back and 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 watch again. And and so, did you? So, in that sound collage, are you? How, when you're when you're thinking about that. How much of how are you thinking about it in relation to the image? Like, when does that come into play, or is it there the whole time? Like, what's the relationship between the two? I I I think it's there the whole time. It's kind of intuitive. I hear a piece of music and I know where it should be going. You know, Um, as you're editing, it's uh, it's the river thing. Um, You just you're open to the possibilities. Will would have an idea when he sends me a track of where he thinks something might go, but it might totally change because the the music's perfect for the film because he just understood the film so well in Namjoon. But he but it, it could change constantly. We were it was kind of a chance operation in that way as well. Um, we just followed. We we tried it in one spot and we were like, okay, th- actually we found a new piece of archive. No, this piece is just th- this piece of video and this sound is obviously right and we just got it no I, I i love that and i think excuse me the yeah just i come from a very like film analysis background so i'm always trying to be better about thinking about sound and i like in watching this film watching namjoon's work it's like you can't sound an image you can't separate them <laughs> right it's uh yeah, at one point, Namjoon, I love when he talks about the synthesizer, which is that digital effects machine that he creates for broadcast, um, the Picave synthesizer. And he says, you play it like a piano. I think that's so beautiful. And that's how we approached the music and the visuals together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, again, thank you so much for your time. And I just want to ask you um, to close here, what has it been like to, and, and again, there's like a million other things that I, you know, um, want to, um, you know, want to ask about the film and, and whatnot. But what has it been like to, to screen this film um, and to kind of, sh- you know, you're dealing with someone who, you know, could be alive today and, and who is, you know, contemporaries and I assume family has maybe seen this already or, or so what, what, what has that been like and what has the response been? Yeah, I mean, it's so... It, it was very nerve wracking at first to share it. I was so excited. Uh, I premiered at Sundance in January and uh, I was so nervous, but I was so excited because that's when the film comes alive when you share it with an audience for the first time. And I couldn't have asked for um, um, a better uh, experience in sharing it the and feeling the room and seeing the film come alive with people has been so moving and what it means to everyone. It's oh, it's different for everyone. And I think that's what's so beautiful. Namjoon 
means everyone can find a connection to Namjoon in so many different ways as we said at the beginning of this conversation that you can approach Namjoon in a million ways. And so even if I'm telling this specific story, a lot of people have a different takeaway when they come out of this. And I think that's really beautiful too. And I, 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 they don't need to take just the things that I, you know, I thought I was sharing. They find new meaning. And I think that's really beautiful. Um, and um, I'm ex- I, I loved going to CPH Docs and sharing it with a European crowd. It's so different from an American crowd. And that was super interesting to you. How so? How so? Um, the, the sense of humor is different. Um, and also um, their relationship to the European history that's at the beginning. Um, and, uh, and also uh, it was more of an art forward crowd uh i mean i showed it at momo which was also a very art forward crowd but at sundance it was a more film forward crowd uh and so that's really interesting even in just the different cultural fields also like at sundance i showed it um at in salt lake city one day and that was a totally different crowd from showing it in park city so salt lake city it was a lot of young um younger students who had found the film um, in their early 20s, maybe even late teens. And that was so wonderful. Um, and that's a big thing that I want to do is um, share this film with um, universities and different institutions and students because um, they were discovering Namjoon for the first time and seeing where a lot of this came from. And they asked so many interesting questions. Um, they wanted to talk afterwards for a while uh it felt like i was in a classroom but also making new friends and uh it was both educational and inspiring for me too um and yeah i think just meeting all these different people has been amazing that's all you professors listening in which is a sizable portion of this audience bring amanda and uh <laughs> for a q a and screen the film um I, I think it would be, yeah, it, it's, it seems like a great introduction to his work. And that actually leads to my, to my final question, which is someone's just watched this documentary or maybe wants to prepare a little bit before going to see it. What is a work or two of Namjoon's that you would say, these are the, these are the first couple that you should, uh, you should check out. And I know that there's probably a million you could choose from, but yeah. Good question. Ugh, all of them. Um, I mean, seeing an installation is such an incredible experience, but that's kind of difficult because it's so hard to restore and, you know, uh, it's not always up in a lot of different places. But I think it's always a good idea to watch one of his video works that are featured, you know, the, the very... Um, um, foundational ones that he's known for, I think, are worthy of a full watch. So... Uh, yes, I saw Global Groove yes last night, which was on Internet Archive. Oh, cool! Which I didn't know that was on Internet Archive. <laughs> yeah, or at least I think it was. It's like thirty minutes. I don't know. I, yeah, I hope that yeah. works right. Thing. Okay, good. Yeah, <laughs> oh, and what's really cool, and I think um, people on this podcast might appreciate, is Namjoon never thought a work was done, so he has millions of versions of the same thing. It's kind of it's very much like um, the TikTok YouTube culture where. Uh, of appropriation, he's like, okay, I'm going to take the, it's, or memes, I'm going to take this image and remix it or you put it in a different context in a different time. And it's going to have totally different meaning now. Um, and so he has like 20 different versions of, you know, uh, good morning, Mr. Orwell. <laughs> and he, it's like, which version did you watch? Um, so I think that's really cool. I think Good Morning, Mr. Orwell is really worth a watch. And it's actually showing right now at MoMA. 
um, uh, they just they just opened a early video art exhibition, which called Signals, and it's historical because video art wasn't shown in this way and you can watch all these early video art pioneers there and they're streaming actually this piece online starting next week. Amazing. Okay. I will be sure to link to that. Or if you're listening earlier, I'll point you in the right direction. Um, but yes. And, and, and again, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us and, and the film, I don't want to spoil it, but so much of the film again is talking about, you know, how he saw so much of the internet and, and, and what was to come. So if you want more of that, please uh, see the film, which again is showing at Film Forum, my favorite theater in New York. Member, I'm a member. I'll sit up front, get the popcorn, go do it, um, and uh, go hopefully see Amanda live for a Q and A. Um, Amanda, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Thank you so much, Will, and hope I see you soon at Film Forum. Mm-hmm.